Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we do thank you for your word. A lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And we pray, Lord, that we would be people that stand on your word. We'd be, we'd be people whose lives are defined by your word. And Lord, we, um, we thank you for the privilege of reading it together. And so do that work, please, by your spirit, through the simple reading of your word. Do that work that you need to do in each and every one of us. And Lord, uh, you do it so skillfully as each of us has need, and we thank you for that. And we pray that you'd be blessed, you'd be glorified through our time here together. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So, we pointed out uh, last week uh, that there's some new folks uh, over the last year or so, and um, that's good. We're thankful that you're here. Uh, if you're old folks, we are still, we're thankful that you're still here. A little bit amazed, but thankful. Um, and uh, so as a habit, what we've been doing is uh, going through an Old Testament chunk and then a New Testament chunk and sort of back and forth marching through the scriptures. We believe very, uh, I don't want to say strongly or dogmatically or whatever it is, we, stand, we, we believe in the teaching of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line by line. It's not the only way to do church, but it, it's uh, what the Lord has um, sort of birthed in our heart uh, and mine personally, as well as us as a fellowship. And so um, if you're here, uh, you're going to hear verse by verse teaching through the word. Simple as that. And so um, that's what we're all about. Interestingly, we, sh we take a little bit of a shift today uh, as we move to the New Testament uh, to go into, we're going to do First and Second Timothy, and then we're going to go back and we're going to do Daniel because we just finished Ezekiel. And so that's kind of the order of that where we're at in the Old and New Testament. But it's interesting that you may or may not realize that uh, last week we talked about sort of the state of the church, state of the church address, if you will, for 2023 and kind of where we're at and where the Lord has us and maybe where the Lord wants us to be and where the Lord's taking us and some of those sorts of things. And it's interesting that the Lord would have us, uh, and I believe there are no accidents uh, uh, in his divine plan. Uh, it's interesting that on the heels of that, he would have us going into First and Second Timothy, because First and Second Timothy and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles. And basically, these are sort of the books of how to do church. Okay, and uh, specifically, if you flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is telling young Timothy, uh, verse, starting in verse uh, 14, Paul's telling young Timothy, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Don't you like that? That just sounds... <clears throat> right? Doesn't sound very soft, doesn't sound too fluffy, just sounds like that's an anchor. And he says, I want you to know how to conduct yourself 
because there is a way to conduct ourselves <laughs> in the house of God. <clears throat> How to set things in order, if you will. Which in, in the house of God, by the way, which is the church, it's the pillar and ground. The church of the living God is the pillar and ground of truth. And I like that. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. The church is where we should come together to sort of take in truth, right? Now, there's truth in various places and and ministries and that sort of thing, but the church really primarily is where we come to anchor into truth. And so Paul's going to sort of set that in order for uh, young Timothy. But first, a little bit of background. Paul met young Timothy when he was on his second missionary journey. We read that in Acts chapter 16 uh, for the sake of uh, just completeness. You don't have to turn there if you don't want, but uh, chapter 16. uh, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. And he he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And so we get a little background. First of all, Timothy is identified as a disciple. Timothy's a a Christian by the time Paul meets him. Not only is he a disciple, he's a disciple with a good reputation. He's spoken well of by the brethren who are in Lystra and Iconium. And so Paul takes him along on his journey. Again, he's on his second journey at this point. Paul has him circumcised, which is interesting. You may or may not recall, circumcision was a big deal to the Jews. Uh, and a medium deal to the Jews who became Christians and not as much of a deal as to the Gentiles, right, to non-Jews. And so Timothy, because his father was a Greek, he was a Gentile, uh, Timothy was not circumcised. And so, but there were Jews in that area that were kind of wanting to know what would, you know, what would happen here. And there's definitely no mandate for Timothy to be circumcised, but Paul wanted to be sensitive to those folks that were in the area. Is that fair? So Paul's trying to reach out to the Jews that are in the area that he's, that he's preaching to. And so as a part of that, because they all knew that Timothy would have been uncircumcised, uh, Paul, as a matter of really as a, of evangelism, um, had Timothy circumcised. So the narrative kind of, as you go through the book of Acts, uh, Timothy kind of comes in and out of the picture a little bit. Um, But at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, I want to read that just for a minute. At the end of Paul's third missionary journey, Paul comes to Ephesus. If you turn to Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, by the way, is just a beautiful, starting in verse 17, it's a beautiful sort of, uh, I think of it as a ministry conference, right? Now, how many of your ministers, raise your hand. You got the memo, good. Um, I think of it as a good ministry conference, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Paul gathers these Ephesian uh, church leaders, the the Ephesian elders, and he basically gives them a talk. And this is on his way back. He knows this is probably the last time he'll see them. Uh, these were the folks from Ephesus. He meets them down at Miletus. And he gives them really a, a, a final, sort of final encouragement. But in the midst of this, if you look at first, um, 
28. We'll start at verse 28. He says, therefore, let's back up just for completeness. 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. For me, that's a bit of a life verse, right? I want to declare to this body the whole counsel of God. Genesis to Revelation. So that's kind of one of those. That's just a parenthetical idea. Uh, But he says, therefore, verse 28, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased for his own blood. Whose church is it? God's. He owns it. What was the price he paid for it? His own blood. Who owns this church? God. What did he pay for it? His own blood, right? So this applies to us as well. And he says, for I know this, and this he's speaking specifically to the Ephesian church, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples, what's that say? After themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so you flip back to 1 Timothy. So Paul, after his, um, probably after after this third missionary journey, he sends Timothy to Ephesus to basically be the pastor of that church in Ephesus. So think of Timothy as a young, and we'll know from other verses here, he's, he's young, he's timid, he's a little insecure, he feels like he's in over his head, he's in perfect shape for be a pastor, right? If you don't, I've heard many people say, and I would agree, as a pastor, if you don't at least once in a while feel like you're in over your head, you're probably a little too self-reliant. And um, so if I say or do something stupid, it's because I'm in over my head, um, but that's okay. God is God, right? So Paul leaves this young Timothy in Ephesus, and he's sending this letter really later. uh, If you trace the history, Paul, after his third missionary journey, as you know, he goes to Rome. uh, He's imprisoned in Rome. Most people believe, uh, as you put put together all the pieces, that he was released from that imprisonment after a couple of years and then was later released. arrested again when Nero was persecuting Christians, and then he later died. So when he was released from prison the first time, um, it was around 62 AD. Most people believe that that's around the time that 1 Timothy was written, okay? And then he was finally executed in 67 AD. So about five years later, he was executed. As you know, um, or you may know, 2 Timothy, he wrote to, to Timothy right before he died. And so there's definitely a sense in 2 Timothy, like, these are my last words, this is my final message. So this, he didn't have quite that urgency, but he has this thing where he's trying to encourage young Timothy how to set things in order, how to lead this church and how to guide this church because savage wolves are going to come in. Now, raise your hand if you're a savage wolf. Good. Raise your hand if you're a minister. Just checking. Savage wolf, minister. Good. So you got it, right? And so um, I'm not necessarily concerned that there's savage wolves here, but do we need to guard against um, weirdness in the church? Does weirdness happen in the church? You bet it does. And so this is a great, and, and let me just ask you this, if you can guess, would it be easier to fix weirdness and deal with it and do surgery on it, and deal with all the ramifications and all the baggage and all the consequences, or prevent it? 
Prevent it, right. So this book is sort of preventing weirdness in the church, right? It's fair enough? So, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. And so you may notice by this time, if you were here through uh, Ezekiel, I think the last week we read Ezekiel, I think we read five chapters, right? So we're slowing way down. Is that okay? You okay? We're not going to read five chapters of 1 Timothy today. So if you were looking forward to that, sorry to disappoint you. We're slowing down. Paul, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Sometimes Paul in his letters identifies himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Like, I'm one of you guys, right? Like, I'm, we're all in this together. I'm a, I think he speaks to the Philippian church that way. You know, because the Philippian church, you know, it's just like an encouraging, you know, hey, you know, we're on this journey together. Well, some books of the Bible, Paul is like laying down doctrine. And so he's kind of uh, identifying his authority, right, as an apostle, right? Um, Corinthians, for sure, he identifies himself as an apostle. Um, Galatians, he'll identify himself as an apostle. And so here he's identifying himself as an apostle, not because Timothy's messing up, but because Paul is instructing Timothy. He's, he's giving commands to Timothy, and it's okay that he has that authority. And I have to pause for a second, because authority is almost a four-letter word in our society. We don't like authority. We don't like to submit to authority because we don't like an authority figure in our lives because that means we have, that's somebody we have to submit to. And I don't know about you. I remember when I was a kid, right? I had, a, I had two authorities in a, as a kid. They were named mom and dad, right? And I remember as a kid, you know, the day's going to come. I don't know if I thought this out loud, but I probably did. The day's going to come when I'm going to be a grown-up, right? And I'll be able to do whatever I want, right? I'm going to hit, like, the ripe old age of 18, 19, 20, 21, something like that, when I'm on the top of my game, right? And after that, like, from 21 or whatever to, like, 101, I'm just going to be cruising, right? It's just kind of all downhill from there, and it's just easy peasy from that point, right? You know that feeling? Kids, be honest with me now. I'm talking to you. Do you know that feeling? Like, man, one day I'm on it. Kids, one day I'm on it. They can't admit it in front of their parents, right? That's why we have parents' kids together in the church, right? Parents looking over, don't you say that. But I remember feeling like, man, someday this authority thing is going to go away. Does that authority thing ever go away? No. no. Number one, it never goes away. Number two, is it something that we should always strive for? Because authority means I'm the what? Starts with a B, rhymes with moss. I'm the boss, right? I'm the boss. Who doesn't want to be the boss? Right? Who doesn't want to be the boss? Yeah. Anybody want to be the President of the United States right now? Governor? I'm good with that. I remember thinking, well, anyway, that's the whole next story. I thought I might go for governor one time, but that was short-lived, right? Being the boss is not like 
what my childhood perception of being the boss was like, right? I always think of this. Pontius Pilate was the boss. You think he wanted to be the boss that day? He would have been happy. He tried to wash his hands of his bossly duties, right? You can't do that. So when you're in an authority, you know, the Lord will put you in places where you're, you know, like the centurion, uh, you know, where you're under someone's authority and in a sense you're over someone's, uh, you have authority over someone else. God will always put us in those situations, right? And that's why, again, going back to the kids, you look to the kids, right? Kids love to talk to the dog. You ever notice that? Sit. So, just an example, right? We all understand being over and under authority, right? Is that fair? Paul is walking in authority. That's the point. If you're in authority, walk in it. Own it. Don't covet it. Don't, it's not an opportunity to say, hey, I'm the boss. We're doing everything my way. It's, a, it's an accountability. It's a stewardship given by God, and we are accountable to God for how we exercise that stewardship. That is so, so very important. Because remember those savage wolves that Paul talked about were going to come into Ephesus? They're going to uh, draw people where? After themselves, right? That's what a savage wolf does. A savage wolf draws people after themselves. And Paul here is just a guy with an authority, and it's an authority as a commandment of God. It's not an optional thing. God put him in that place. Romans chapter 13 says God puts people in places of authority. God does that. And so God put Paul in this position. Notice also he says that God is his Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. So we know that God is our Savior. And I think, you know, as part of the Trinity, obviously Jesus Christ is our Savior too and all that. You understand that. But I think we know that God is our Savior. Sometimes I'm not sure we are always aware that Jesus is our hope. Does that make sense? Can I encourage us today, because I'm aware of some situations. I mean, we all go through situations, right? We're all in a situation. We're all, you know, a work in progress. There are situations kind of all over the room, right? I I recognize that. And some are very difficult, and I acknowledge that. But sometimes our hope is in our solution that we come up with or our wisdom or the expert or what the expert might say or what the consultant might say or something like that. I mean, mean, there's nothing wrong really with any of that stuff, but our hope should be in Jesus Christ, period. And let me say further, Hopelessness is a miserable place to be. Hopelessness is one of the most miserable places on earth. And who's Jesus Christ available to? Everybody. So no one should be hopeless on this earth. Are there hopeless people on this earth? Yeah, there are. We as ministers should be ministering to them because there are hopeless people. And so hope is a beautiful thing. And hope through Jesus is a very great thing.
He says to Timothy, a true son in the faith. So Timothy's identified as a true son in a sense, you know, in the same way of, of, you know, we talked about the levels of authority. We should all have sort of sons and parents in the faith, if you will. Uh, And if we're ministers, we'll have sons in the faith. Does that make sense? And there should always be somebody that, you know, we're kind of trying to encourage, we're trying trying to bring along. There's a guy that um, I won't embarrass him. He's not in the room today. But... um, this guy's had tremendous struggles, just tremendous struggles, and uh, struggles with his flesh, and just his life, and it's, and, you know, from an outsider standpoint, it just looks like the wheels are completely falling off, right? But this guy's hanging on to his hope in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing, and, uh, and he really, and he keeps coming around. You know what is, you know what he wants to do? He, right now, he's got, a, he's got a vision to disciple his nephew who has similar struggles as him. Now, if you look at this guy, you'd think, this guy's got nothing. I mean, from a worldly standpoint, you'd say, what does this guy have to offer, right? This guy's so encouraging to his nephew, right? There's nobody that shouldn't have a son in the faith. Is that fair? That's what it means to be a minister, is that you have at least a, one or two or three or four sons or daughters in the faith right? He says to Timothy, a true son in the faith. And then he goes, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I love this. So if you ever hear me talk about one of these, uh, one of Paul's letters uh, at the beginning, he always says grace and mercy. I'm sorry, grace and peace. He always says grace and peace. Those are so beautiful. Uh, And it's so beautiful that those two go hand in hand, grace and peace. And what's interesting is they always go in that order. Why do they go in that order? Because there is no such thing as peace without the grace of God. You ever try to have peace apart from the grace of God? Right? Once you get, your, once you get your, all your ducks in a row and your life lined up and, you know, reach that magic age of 20 or 21 or 22 or whatever that magic age is, um, you think you're going to have peace, right? There's no peace without the grace of God. Grace comes first, and then comes peace. Can I encourage you? If you're trying to find peace apart from the grace of God, you will find yourselves extremely frustrated. Extremely frustrated. Now, here's a twist. Paul inserts in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. What did I call those three books? The pastoral epistles. Paul inserts in those three, mercy, grace, mercy, and peace. Remember I said pastors are in over their head? Pastors need mercy. Are we ministers? Are we all pastors in a sense? We all ministers? Are we all in the ministry? Yes. Does that mean we feel like we're in over our head? Yes. There's mercy for that. There's grace, mercy, and peace to those of us, all of us, who are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing that we see uh, demonstrated through these words. So he knows that Timothy needs a little extra encouragement He's given him, he's offering grace, mercy, and peace. And they come not from anything other than Jesus Christ, God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, verse 3, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Here we go. Here we go. He says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Remain in Ephesus. Now, 
I mentioned last week, if you were here, uh, the Lord, for whatever crazy reason, has people coming in from all over here, right, to this place. Hope I don't embarrass anybody, but we got a new one today, right? I won't, I won't I'll, I'll look this way so I don't embarrass anybody. If you were, if you came here from Chicago, Chicago is just like barely a day trip, right? Or if you came from Arizona or Idaho or anything like that, guess where, guess where we got one today from? Anyone want to guess? Hawaii. Hawaii. Got Hawaii here today, right? It's your job to figure out who it is. I'm not telling. So Hawaii. So, you know, God moves people, okay? God moves people. Now you're going to, I'm sorry, you're going to be so distracted, you're just going to, that's, okay, just unwind that from your brain and just listen again, okay? God moves people. But God also t- sometimes says, remain. Remain. Paul tells Timothy, remain in Ephesus. Now, why is it important that, that we, at least in this context that we're reading about, why is it important sometimes that we remain? Because sometimes, okay, if the God moves us, God moves us. That's fine. You can't argue with that. But sometimes, have you noticed that human beings tend to be a little discontented? Have you ever noticed that? Human beings can be discontented. Raise your hand if you've ever been discontent, right? Might have been uh, a car once. Might have been a car, right? Ever been discontent with a car? There's a fine line between discontentment and covetousness, isn't there, right? You've heard me say this story before, you know, back before I had a cool tractor. My wife used to mock me and point out tractors and say, that guy has a perfect life. Had a tractor in his yard. I said, yeah, his wife is so supportive. She let him have one. It's amazing. God bless that guy. But, you know, we're all discontent in some way, right? As ministers, raise your hand if you're a minister. Good. As ministers, can I, can I highlight this for a second? There's a possibility that we could be discontent in our ministry, Right? Because there's always a mirage of a ministry over there. And you know what that ministry over there looks like? Everybody telling me I'm awesome. Right? Remember those wolves that are coming to Ephesus? They're going to get people to come after what? Themselves. Right? What's the temptation in ministry? Many of you are aware of this. What's temptation in ministry? I'm going to go there. You know, I'm, that ministry over there, it's cool, it's hip, it's glamorous. They've got an amazing website. And people are going to tell me I'm awesome. And every one of them, down to the last human being, is just going to, like, do everything I say. Their lives are going to be perfect. They're going to have no challenge. It's going to be financially blessed. That's the ministry I want to go for, right? Is that temptation real for for? people in ministry? You bet it is. You bet it is. Sometimes God would say, remain in Ephesus. Now, if God brought you here, that's awesome. I'm thankful. And I, and I, these stories I'm hearing, I think God is bringing people here. So I'm not taking anything away from that. But just be careful about that uh, illusion of a cooler ministry. You know, you've heard me say, to me, I, to me, I go back to the, uh, one of the ultimate cool ministries, is motherhood. 
You show me a faithful young mother changing diapers. How much glory is in that? None. It stinks. There's no glory in that. But how much, what's that worth in the eyes of God? Now, be careful. I'm not singling out mothers necessarily. But be careful about if God has you in a ministry, God has you in that ministry. That's a divine, sacred assignment. And everybody in the room, can you catch this? Everybody in the room has a different circle of influence. You all have circles of influence that I don't have. And I have a circle of influence that you don't have. And none is higher or greater or grander than the other in the eyes of God. What counts is, what did God tell, what did God tell the Corinthians through the words of Paul? Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. What matters is that you be faithful to that ministry that God has for you. I cannot emphasize this enough. I've seen people just over the years seek some elusive, cool thing because it's going to be awesome. And I mean, I'm, I'm not, I can't judge. I don't know. But it just seems like there's a cool thing about just being faithful to what God has you. And so I mean, that's why I'm excited about you guys all being in the ministry in this community. That's exciting. So, Paul tells Timothy, Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. This word charge is a, is a military uh, word. It's usually translated command. The idea is passing on a command from one person to another. And as Paul has been given authority to God, by God, Paul is giving, he's telling Timothy to pass on that authority to others. That <clears throat> command, Paul's saying, I may charge you, or that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, we all have doctrinal bents. We talked about this last week. By the way, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to listen to the tape. We all have different doctrinal bents. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If we're going to function like the body of Christ, right? Not everybody looks like a hand and not everybody looks like an ear and not everybody looks like an eye, right? And each of those cells, if you will, in the, bo- in the human body are critical and so is every different sort of doctrinal bent in the body of Christ. Fair enough? And so it's a very uh, cool thing when it's working together as a healthy body. But there are some other doctrines that we need to be careful about. He says, in this case, in the case of the Ephesians, he says, or, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So, <clears throat> to me, the litmus test of a doctrine, somebody wants to go on, go on, for, on a doctrine, I mean, if you want to talk about the doctrine that's near and dear to your heart, that's awesome. Okay? My question will be, does that cause disputes or godly edification? Does that make sense? I heard one today. I thank, thank, thank you that uh, you guys present me uh, good, good um, material, if you will, uh, before church every Sunday. So if you don't want to be in the, uh, 
in the recording. Probably shouldn't talk to me on Sunday. But anyway, I had one this morning. Uh, a gal comes up to me and she says, hey, I heard somebody tell me this. Uh, uh, looked at my phone, noticed that, hey, they said, do you have a, is that an Apple phone? Said, yeah. See on the back there? It's got a picture of an apple. Can you all see my apple? can't see my apple. But you probably know because you've been subliminally indoctrinated. But anyway, that on the right side of that apple is what? Well, chunk's been taken out of it, out of the apple, on the apple logo, right? You know what that means? It's a reference to Eve eating the apple, right? And this, so your phone is demonic. Okay, now, that's kind of funny, kind of sad, truthfully. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you read the Bible, you probably won't be thrown off by that. And if the apple is demonic, you're probably going to say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And you're, going to be able, you're probably going to be able to rattle off some scripture that says, I'm not too worried about that. Okay? Could Apple be demonic? Totally. Right? But I want to stick to the Scripture. Is that fair? And there's lots of, man, especially in this day and age, right? Social media? Really? Does social media give us an opportunity to go sideways here and there and everywhere? You bet it does. Has there never been a time? I, I'm convinced there's never been a time like, like now where we need to stick close to the Scripture. And we need to discern what's coming our way. And we discern doctrines. And if there's a great litmus test, even, I want to be careful, even some biblical doctrines. I've heard, I've heard some people articulate biblical doctrines that are totally in a sense, spot on. But what do they create? They create disputes. They create disputes. They create an opportunity for me to appear smarter than you. Is that fair? You know, we've talked about, you know, God is sovereign and man is responsible and they go hand in hand. But boy, if you take somebody that wants to go off on one or the other and go off in a argumentative sort of a way and I've seen it I've seen it I've seen it I've seen it and it does not cause godly edification of the body of Christ and so let me just say this be careful right yeah be careful about you know whether or not the Apple logo is demonic but also be careful about these the biblical doctrines right everything's in the context of Scripture Everything's in the context of Scripture. So these things cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. You've got to like that. So what's the purpose of biblical teaching? Love. What's the purpose of biblical teaching? Love. And I talked about last week, we are all about, as a, as a body here, we're all about the Word and the Holy Spirit. What's the, first, what's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love. Right? Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is, and it's interesting, the word is, is singular. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
And then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Many people would say those next eight are really sort of adjectives to describe love, which is the primary fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. The purpose of the command of teaching the Word of God is love. They go hand in hand. What kind of love? Love that comes from a pure heart. Love is, by definition, comes from a pure heart, right? Because our motives are, are in check if we genuinely love. But Paul's emphasizing it here uh, because our love needs to be from a pure heart, not something that will draw others after ourselves, but from a pure heart. What else? From a good conscience. You know, love doesn't proceed out of guilt or obligation or condemnation. Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you a funny story. One of my kids was talking last night uh, about this guy I was talking about that has been struggling. And uh, she was talking to him and trying to encourage him. And he was saying, yeah, you know, I, feel, I was talking to your dad and I was just telling him that, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm tired of trying it on my own and trying to my own strength and all of that. And she says to him, did he talk to you about Romans chapter 8? And he says, he always talks to me about Romans chapter 8. <laughs> right? right? I hope if you struggle with something in your flesh, you read Romans chapter 8. And I hope if you talk to me for five minutes, I'll point you to Romans chapter 8. Right? What's Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8 is all about walking in the Spirit. What's Romans chapter 7? All about trying hard in the flesh. Romans chapter 7 is the New Year's resolution. Romans chapter 8 is try the Spirit instead. Period. Right? By the way, it's January. If you're in Romans chapter 7 with a New Year's resolution, read on. Read the next chapter. Right? That's just the reality. But anyway, that was a... Yeah. A good conscience. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Love that comes from a good conscience is a beautiful thing. Love that comes from a sincere faith. This is the bottom line. If we have a sincere faith in Jesus Christ, then love pours out of our hearts. We teach the Word which manifests love and it encourages others. That's called the ministry. Simple as that. Verse 6. From which some, having strayed, turned, have turned aside to idle talk. So this is the reality. Some people stray from this kind of sincerity. They did then, and they do now. And they turn aside to idle talk. Can I tell, you, tell us this? That doctrine or opinions or anything like that that's not based on the Word is really idle talk. Fair enough? And so be careful about that. Be careful about idle talk. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And so they desire to be teachers because they want to share their opinions. They want to draw people after themselves and all of that. And it's a road that we don't want to go down. He says, but know this, verse 8, that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the law, he's talking about the Old Testament law, but for us the application is really all the scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament precepts. They're useful in the context God gave them. And so that's the reality for us. Knowing this, that the law was not made for the righteous person, 
but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul's given Timothy a list, and the reality is Timothy's probably surrounded by a bunch of these people, maybe even in the church. And so the purpose of the law, the purpose of the Scripture for us is to point these people back. It's not to beat them up with these things. It's godly edification. It's to cause people to repent. But let me just say this. If we want to try to live a Christian life and practice these things, we're going to, we're going to be shipwrecked. And so the Scripture points us back to the Lord for these things. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 3? All Scripture is profitable for reproof, right? For correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Word does. And so, if anybody is lawless, insubordinate, ungodly, unholy, profane, murderers, of fathers and murderers of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. And by the way, let's go through that list. Of, just scan that list. We're somewhere on that list, right? We're somewhere on that list. I like what we've been reading in Romans on Wednesday nights, right? Don't think just because somebody else is somewhere else on that list that that doesn't mean you're all on the same list, right? Anybody ever lied? All right, then we're all on the list. Right? Anything that's contrary should be directed back to the, should, the word should direct us back to the, to the Lord. And so that's a beautiful, beautiful purpose of the Lord, of the word. According, verse 11, to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Again, Paul likes to remind us these summary statements. Uh, according to the glorious gospel. What's the glorious gospel? That all of us who are Romans 3 sinners, really, all of us who are on this list, all of us, because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous. No, not one. None of us are righteous on our own. You could make a biblical case that none of us even have the, the capacity to turn to Christ without the, the nudging of the Holy Spirit. We're all there, but we've all been saved by Jesus, right? If we receive Jesus into our, into our lives, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Period. We're all sinners, destined to hell. We'll have opportunity to go to heaven because of Jesus Christ. That's the glorious gospel of the blessed God, of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And I believe it's committed to all of our trusts. Who believe that. If we believe that, we're ministers of that. It's our, it's our opportunity. It's not our duty or our, or our obligation, but it's our privilege to share that with others. And, and really, this is one of the reasons that I harp on we're all ministers. Because if you think about it, if, when I go to my secular job, let's say, we'll call it a secular job. Really, there, I don't think there's any such thing as a secular job. But for, for the sake of argument, we'll call it my secular job. When I go to my secular job and I'm having a conversation with somebody, check me if you've ever done this, and in the middle of that conversation, you feel like, you know, I think this, this conversation needs to go 
from the physical to the spiritual. You ever been in one of those situations? Right? This conversation needs to go from the circumstance to the Lord. This person needs encouragement in the Lord, right? It's like, by the way, that's, that's called the voice of the Holy Spirit, right? So you get that little nudge, right? And then you have what? A decision to make, right? And check me on this if you've ever experienced this. If I'm the only one, I'll admit it. There's something in your, in your brain that also now starts, you're having a conversation with this person, but you're also now having a conversation with the Lord, right? And it starts with something like, I'm really not in the mood for this. <laughs> Am I right? I mean, I remember, this has been years ago, I sit down next to somebody on an airplane, and they start talking about, like, Bible stuff or something, and I, was, I remember thinking, I forget where we were even going, I think maybe we were traveling as a family or something, I forget. And I don't fly on airplanes very much, thank God. But I remember... I remember sitting next to this lady, and I'm like, I, am, I just wanted to take a nap, <laughs> right? You ever feel that, right? But this gospel has been committed to our trust, right? I mean, I don't want to lay a trip on, on myself or anybody. And, you know, when, you know, believe me, there's been plenty of times where I've said, I'm just not in the mood, and I walked according to that selfish desire. Okay, I'm just saying that. But there, uh, and you know, what, you know what that is? That's, that's a missed opportunity, right? Can God, did God need me to save that person? No. God's, God's plenty capable. What, what was it for me? It was a missed opportunity. And so often, can I just tell you this? So often, I'll just crack the door open and out comes this, oh my goodness, Jesus moment, right? It happens so often. So, this gospel has been committed to our trust. Don't take that lightly. That's a sacred stewardship that we've been given. He goes on, he says, And I thank, Jesus, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he's counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And guess what? Jesus enables us to be ministers, right? So, you know, probably one of the most common, th- you know, when I tell somebody, hey, we're all ministers, one of the first things... People say all the time, well, I'm not, I'm not qualified, right? What does qualified mean, right? Of course you're not qualified. Neither am I. Am I qualified to stand here? No, except for the grace of God, right? We're all unqualified, but Jesus, I'm thank, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So we're all ministers, and we're all enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what we're supposed to do, to encourage who we're supposed to encourage, to equip who we're supposed to equip. So we need to be on guard for those daily opportunities. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which we are which are in Christ Jesus. And so, Paul was a, you know, many of you know, before Paul became a Christian, he was a horrible uh, persecutor of, of Christians. Terrible persecutor of Christians. And um, God broke through that. God, God's grace was exceedingly abundant for that. God's mercy was exceedingly abundant. And uh, it's a great example for us. 
There's, by the way, no one. There's no one. By the way, no one. By the way, no one who's so far gone that they're outside of the reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, even as that I say that, keep that in mind. That person you're thinking about who's really messed up. That person you're thinking about who is really messed up. That person who really maybe even just bugs you because they're so messed up. You really just can't stand even maybe even be around them, perhaps, because they're so messed up. They're not too far gone. Don't give up on them. I've seen God do amazing things over the years. I've seen God do situations that I thought I, would have, I wouldn't have bet on. Don't give up on anybody. The faithful minister doesn't give up on anybody. Now, do we sometimes have to draw lines and do we have to sometimes make some difficult decisions? Yeah. But don't give up on anybody. Verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So Jesus didn't give up on Paul. I think we're not supposed to give up on anybody. Verse 16. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So Paul's example reminds us that, reminds us that no one's too far gone. Nobody's out of the reach of Jesus Christ. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I love this. Catch this now. Paul goes on, he gives Timothy some basic instructions right? And then he says, by the way, God counted me worthy to be a minister of the gospel, and he enabled me to be a minister of the gospel, even though I was a mess, right? I was a mess, and I received grace and mercy even though I was a mess. Therefore, he says, now, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What should be the natural response of God's grace and mercy in our life? Praise. Praise and thanksgiving. Catch this? The natural outflow, Paul says, I was a mess. I was horrible. And God even used me as an example as being like the worst of the worst who could receive grace and mercy. Therefore, now I praise him. What should God's grace and mercy do in our lives? It should cause us to praise him and it should cause us to want to minister to others. Simple as that. Really not much more complicated than that. Praise him. Live a life of thankfulness and serve others. Verse 18, then he closes down. He says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy. That word charge again. Again, that's that military word. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And so uh, he goes back to this word charge again, speaking to a son as a loving father. 
And according to the prophecies, apparently there was some prior, we don't really know what it is, but apparently there was a prior prophecy given to, to Timothy um, related to this. And so Paul's kind of confirming that. But he tells him, he says, wage the good warfare. Wage the good warfare. Now, we talked about our doctrine, our teaching, our study of the Bible should cause godly edification rather than disputes, right? But warfare sounds like a dispute, right? Yeah. But sometimes, Romans chapter 12 tells us, as much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. Many of you heard me say before, that means that there's some, there's some aspect of that that's beyond our ability, okay? So that's one thing. So sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we might have to just distance ourselves from a situation. We might have to uh, protect ourselves, or we might have to protect our family, or we might have to protect those entrusted to us from uh, a situation, right? Are there toxic situations in this, in this world? Are there people exhibiting toxic behavior in this world? Yeah, sometimes we have to draw those lines. But the reality is, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, right? Uh, who's, who's behind all of that? Satan, right? The demonic forces. He says, um, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, right? Now, I like this idea of we're supposed to wage the good warfare, right? We're supposed to contend for the faith, uh, I believe Jude tells us. We're, we're supposed to put on the full armor of God. We're a, Paul will tell Timothy in the second letter, I believe, uh, to engage in warfare as a, as a soldier. He says no soldier gets entangled in the affairs of daily life because he wants to please, wants to please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And so there's these, there's these pictures throughout the Scripture of warfare. The Christian life is not for sissies. The Christian life is a bit of a warfare, Right? So how do we fight that warfare? We get our pet doctrines and we go around picking fights with everybody and say, I bet you're one of the bad guys. Is that how we do it? No. no. And I like the picture in Ephesians chapter 6. I haven't, didn't count them. But it's like four or five times we see the word stand. Right? I like the word stand. Stand is like, this is how I fight the good fight. I'm not picking a fight. I'm not caving, right? But I'm standing. I'm standing on the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit against the forces of evil, right? And as I do that, I'm fighting the good, the good, the good fight. I'm, I'm waging the good warfare. Lovingly, graciously, but it's, it's a balance, right? We have to be super loving, super gracious, full of the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? We said this earlier. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. That's the person who's filled with the Spirit. Right? So that's the person that needs to fight the good fight. That's the person who needs to wage warfare, right? Our weapons aren't like the, the world's weapons, Second Corinthians tells us. 
Our, warf- our weapons are not carnal. They're not worldly. We fight with love and a dependence on him who, is, him who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Right? But we do have to fight the forces of evil that are present in this world. So he tells Timothy all that. It's a, it's a delicate balance. And believe me, let me just say this. As I say that, you're looking at a guy who's learned the hard way about all the ways not to do that balance. Right? Man, I was a, I was a pretty good fighter back in the day. <laughs> right? Man, I could call out bad doctrine. I could call out misguided motives. I could call out just about anything that to be called out. Right? And over time, I get a little more tame. I think a little more balanced, well-rounded, all-around good guy. A lot of those things, right? But over time, you learn the balance, right? There's the balance of warfare and love, right? And it's only as the Holy Spirit can direct in our lives. So he says, Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. So these are some like what we talked about earlier. Of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul delivered these two guys. This is a good example. He delivered them. He sort of turned them, turned them loose, right? Like, I'm not going to listen to your baggage anymore, right? We don't know exactly how that looked. But anyway, he turned them over. Remember 1 Corinthians, uh, I believe, chapter 5? There's a guy who's in, in the middle of the church, is involved in flagrant immorality, right? Paul tells the Corinthian church, turn him over, right? For the destruction of his flesh, Right? There's sometimes you don't engage. I was talking to a guy last week who is wrestling with trying to minister to a guy who just wants to get involved in an argument all the time and wants to, wants to use uh, his doctrinal position against him. And, you know, if I'm, you know, if I can't lose my salvation, then I'm just going to do whatever I want, just like Romans 6 tells me not to do, right? And keep on sinning and, hey, I'm saved and I'm going to, you know, and it's just like you can't go there. That guy needs to be just sort of turned loose, right? Turned over, right? And Paul gives a lot of example of that. I want to read just briefly, and then we'll wrap up. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, t- Paul gives us some, some insight into this a little bit. And again, he's talking, keep in mind now, he's talking to Timothy in terms of shepherding this church. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with covetors, the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world, right? Like if we, to- if we said, hey, I don't want anybody to hang out with any covetous people this week or any sexually immoral people this week or any extortioners this week or any idolaters this week. Don't anybody hang out with any of those right? Where would you go? (laughs) Right? You have to find a new planet, right? He said, I didn't mean that. He said, since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. 
So these are hard words, but I think they give us some guidelines. There's sometimes that people want to come in and, and uh, thankfully, I can say, uh, I don't really feel like we have, to, we don't, don't, definitely don't have to do with this now, here. But I feel like there's sometimes that people will come into a church. So again, I'm not talking about this church. But there's sometimes people will come into a church, and it's like they want to just push the limits. They want to push the buttons, right? They want to claim Christianity and just do everything as flagrantly as immoral as they can. You know what Paul says? Don't even eat with them. Right? Don't have anything to do with them. Why? So you can be, like, harsh? No. For the destruction of their flesh. And so that's what Paul did with these guys, Hymenius and Alexander. We don't know what happened uh, later. But the point is, God is serious about protecting his people. And God is serious about uh, destroying the flesh. God is serious about trying to bring people back into a right relationship with him. And so this should be a safe haven, right? This should be, this should be where we come and live like I talked about last week. This is where we should co- come and live as the body of Christ. Living and breathing and working together. Getting fed by the word. Getting uh, reminded of the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit to do what needs to be done. And then we go back into our ministry and to the battlefield. And, and frankly, sometimes the hard places, right? We come here for a recharge. We go out there and do the work of the ministry, right? That's how that works. And uh, it's not always easy. So, if you feel timid, Timothy was a timid young pastor. If you feel like you're in over your head, Timothy felt like he was in over his head. What do you do if you feel like you're in over your head? You stay true to the Word. You stay true to the Word. You stay true to the Word. What's, What's Paul telling Timothy? Just stick true to the Word. Edify the body. Don't get involved in, in disputes and all that. Receive the grace of God. Recognize that, Paul would say, recognize the grace that was extended to me. And as a result of that, all I can say is, uh, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Right? Worship the Lord. Let your life be a worship to the Lord. And fight the good fight. It's a great little overview, right, to this young pastor, Timothy. It's a great little overview to us. And so um, God loves to uh, use us, but avoid the distractions. Remain faithful. Stay true to the word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us these instructions so powerful so relevant, so needful as we each engage in ministry. And Lord, we, we pray that you would give us that, um, that diligence, that faithfulness, that filling of your spirit day by day to do the work of the ministry that you would have us do, that you would be glorified and honored in our lives. So please do that work this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Have an awesome, awesome week.